Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. We have a returning guest today. We are joined by Jim Rickards, investment advisor, lawyer, economist, author of the financial newsletter, Strategic Intelligence, and a best-selling author of multiple books. Jim is one of the most requested guests that we get on the podcast, so we wanted to have him on to give his updated macroeconomic view, his thoughts on the Israel-Hamas war, what this could potentially mean for oil, why this could be a financial war, and why the biggest threat to the U.S. dollar is actually the U.S. itself, and his thoughts on what is happening on college campuses. As always, I really enjoyed having Jim on to share his views, and I hope you all enjoyed this one as much as I did. Jim Rickards, investment advisor, lawyer, economist, editor of Strategic Intelligence, a financial newsletter, and of course, a best-selling author of multiple books. It is so great to welcome you back on the show. And Jim, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Julia. It's great to be with you. It's always great to have you, and it's such an important time. And I know our audience is keen to hear from you and what you think, especially with everything transpiring in the world. So, Jim, I want to give you as much time as you need. This is not a show where you get interrupted. So when I say as much time, you could take as much time as you need to set the table, if you will, for the big picture. It's the macro view, um, maybe the intersection of the geopolitics, the economics, the markets, even the politics, if you will. So I'll just let you have as much time as you need to set the table with everything happening right now. Sure. Thanks, Shirley. That's a, a pretty uh, pretty broad mandate, but we'll see. Uh, we'll kind of take it around with it. Um, yeah, I, I'm primarily a macro analyst. I look at technicals and fundamentals, but I really kind of bring the geopolitical and international um, economic perspective to bear. So that, that's kind of what I do. But uh, this is a very um, unusual situation where you, you sort of get a macro view of something and you realize, well, wait, wait, there's a bigger macro view and then an even bigger one behind that. So you have to kind of keep going through the layers. So, of course, enormous amount of attention focused right now on the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, we, we kind of know what happened on October 7th, but I, I still, you know, and I... I followed the Ukrainian war close, uh, closely. I read a lot of history. Um, you know, I'm quite familiar with the course of the Holocaust. Uh, it's still difficult for me to grasp what happened. I know what happened, like, kind of literally timeline, but the horror of it um, is still sinking in. Um, of course, Hamas launched this attack across the Israeli border with Gaza on October 7th. Um, a couple interesting aspects of it. It was very low tech. Um, Hamas doesn't have an air force. They don't have uh, armored divisions. They don't have tanks. They don't have planes. Um, so they, uh, but they used uh, you know these kind of power paragliders, parasailers that you can find in any beach resort to you know fly over the fence. Um, they used uh, you know Zodiac type vessels to make a seaborne assault. Um, you can buy those in any you know sporting goods store. Um, and they use bulldozers. They don't have tanks or Bradley fighting vehicles, but they have bulldozers. Uh, and they use those to knock down the wall. And then once they created the breaches in the wall, they swarmed in on on motorcycles, uh, motorbikes. Uh, so yeah, okay, parasailers, zodiacs, bulldozers, motorbikes. You can you can get those things anywhere. Uh, they're not usually weapons, but they were weaponized in this case, um, and very effective. And they swarmed in. 
what happened from there was uh, was different, and this is where the horror comes in. They weren't looking to confront the Israeli defense forces. They were not looking for outposts or uh, any, as I say, had had co- confrontation with any military units. They just went after civilians and they killed as many civilians as they could. So this was not a case where the civilians were collateral damage or, you know, in wars you fight the enemy, but civilians get killed. No, they, they went in to kill civilians as many as they could, as fast as they could. And the details, I mean, I don't want to dwell on it, but it, they're, they're of the highest order of, of horror. They, they, you know, women were defending their children, they killed the mother and then killed the kids. Um, they, uh, uh, there was rape, there was torture, um, they mutilated uh, the dead and the living. I mean, it's killing somebody's bad enough, but then you, you, know, you mutilate the bodies. Um, you know, limbs were cut off, um, bodies were piled up, um, and, and worse. I mean, I, I, no, no need to dwell on this except to say that this was not just killing civilians, which is bad enough and a war crime and all that, but, but killing them in ways designed to to be horrible and create horror and create fear um it's not even i don't even i mean people call them terrorists i i i'm not sure they're they're quite terrorists they're more like stormtroopers or what the the vikings used to call berserkers who went into combat just in a trance um and and were exceedingly violent so that's horrible enough 13 is 1400 dead in one day uh, Overwhelmingly civilians, overwhelmingly Israelis, but a lot of people are. What we're now learning, some of the numbers are coming in. How many foreigners were killed? Um, about all these round numbers, so you know, very close. Don't have exact numbers in front of me, but about thirty Americans dead, but another twenty or so missing. Um, uh, could still be found dead, but perhaps hostages. Uh, there were thirty or so um, uh, Thai citizens, uh, you know, folks from Thailand. Mostly there was guest workers, uh, 21 French killed, uh, 10 British killed, 10 Russians killed, um, and, and other, other nationalities. Uh, and not really surprising in the sense that Israel is a popular destination. I've been there. I've been all over Israel. I've been in the West Bank. I've been in the Golan Heights with the Israeli Defense Forces. I've been in uh, the Palestinian territory. Uh, I've been to Jordan. I've been kind of all over the area. Um, it's uh, you know it's a beautiful country, uh, but people go there as uh, tourists. They go there as students. They go there as religious uh, pilgrimages, um, uh, scientists, uh, and guest workers. So there are just lots of reasons for people from all over the world to be there, and many of them were killed. Again, just to be clear, overwhelmingly Israeli, but there's a, almost a little bit of denial about the fact that 29 or 30 Americans were killed. I mean, if 30 Americans were killed in a uh, an assault on civilians by some terrorist force anywhere else in the world, that would almost be a cause of war for war. But because it was in the context of this much larger massacre that we seem to be ignoring it. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's really a shock to the French, the Thais. should be a shock to the Americans. I'm a little surprised there hasn't been more um, international uh, uh, outrage given the scope of it. But getting back to the Israelis, this was the largest um, slaughter of Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. Um, and normally I could just put a period after Holocaust and leave it at that and people would know what I mean. But um, unfortunately in America, it seems like we stopped teaching history somewhere in the 1990s. 
And you almost have to remind people what the Holocaust was. But, you know, six million Jews killed by Nazis and Germans um, over the course of World War II, uh, not just big numbers, but done on an industrial scale, planned industrial scale. They actually couldn't kill people fast enough with bullets. They had to create, uh, you know, the gas chambers and the ovens and all that. But but that was over in 1945. And since then, this is the most Jews killed in one day um, since the Holocaust. So that, uh, in addition to the horror I described, helps to put it all in context. So that's what we know. Um, Israel has responded with a massive bombing campaign in Gaza. It helps to know a little bit about the geography of the Gaza Strip. Um, it's small. Uh, it's uh, about eight, 10 miles wide and maybe 40 miles long, lies along the Mediterranean coast. Um, the southern border is a border with, with Egypt. Um, it's, it you know, kind of goes into the Sinai, but it's not a border with Israel. The eastern border and the northern border are with Israel. Um, so it's completely you know, surrounded. You know, you got the coast. Uh, it's completely blockaded right now. So no food, water, um, any other supplies or provisions are getting in. The electricity has been cut off. Um, the borders are closed. So there are a lot of, uh, Israel said to the Palestinians, get out of northern Gaza. The, mo most of the populations in northern Gaza, closer to that border with Israel. Um, and uh, it's extremely densely populated, you know, about 2 million people, but uh, over a million in the, what they call Gaza City, which is just a big conurbation. Uh, and Israel said, go to the south. They didn't guarantee they wouldn't attack the south, but they more or less let it be known that that's not their target. Their target is the northern part of Gaza, you know, a, again, abundant Israel. Uh, I said, just go south because we're coming in and we're going to, we're not out to kill civilians, but there will be civilian casualties, what they call collateral damage. So get out and go to the south. Many have, but how do you move a, a million people in 72 hours when they don't have any, um, you know, kind of sophisticated transportation network, war supplies or anything else? Hard to say. Um, and a lot of them have ended up, there's a town in the southern part of the Gaza Strip on the Egyptian border called Rafa. That's a border crossing. Uh, but it's closed. And people are saying, well, why won't the Egyptians let in the Palestinians so they can at least get out of the way of this Israeli attack? And um, the answer is uh, that it wasn't that long ago that Obama installed a member of the Muslim Brotherhood as the president of Egypt. And they had to have a military coup to get rid of the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan in, uh, in Arabic, is the, the most radical Islamist faction. You can break it down into Hamas and Hezbollah and um, you know, fighters in different countries and ISIS and all that, but they all kind of come under this umbrella of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is ex extreme and radical. The Muslim Brotherhood chapters in the United States, don't let them tell you that they're just you know, like civic organizations. Th these are the most extreme elements. But they, um, so they had to overthrow the Obama installed Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt, get in military guy, Al Sisi, who's now the president to stabilize things. So the Egyptians say, thanks. We've had enough experience with the Palestinians. You're not coming in. Jordanians said the same thing. And people say, well, I won't the Jordanians let the Palestinians in. Well, the last time they did, they tried to assassinate King Abdullah twice, and they tried to overthrow the monarchy. So Abdullah had what they called, um, uh, I think, Black September. I forget exactly what year it was, um, sometime in the 1970s. But he basically drove all the Palestinians out of Jordan and sent them to Lebanon, where they are today. So there are over a million Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, they 
sort of form the backbone of Hezbollah. I mean, it gets complicated uh, really fast. But the point is, the Jordanians are not letting them back in. The Egyptians are not letting them back in. They went to great lengths to get rid of them. And of course, the Israelis are not letting them in. So they have nowhere to go. Uh, you'd almost have to have a seaborne evacuation. I don't know where they would go. Um, but uh, but they've been warned. They moved to the south. Israel's coming in. Now, they're already bombarding Gaza City by air. Um, but what we're talking about is a ground invasion and with armor and infantry and artillery and, um, and, and drones and a lot else. And people say, well, what's, what's the holdup here? You know, it's been a, a week at this point or, or almost two weeks. Um, the answer is, and I thought, uh, you know, Omar Bradley, who was, you know, the number two World War II general under Eisenhower in terms of planning the D-Day invasion, uh, he made a very smart comment. He said, you know, the pundits and the armchair generals uh, think about, you know, brigades and, and attacks. He said, the real military people think about logistics. Uh, in other words, you want to send armor in? Fine. Where's the gasoline coming from? You want to send infantry in? Great. Where's the food and water? Um, you want to, you know, go door to door and fight it out in Gaza City? Great. Where's the ammunition coming from? In other words, all those supplies, water, food, fuel, ammunition, um, uniforms, medical support, those logistics are often what determine the success of, um, of an invasion. And all you have to do is look at the Wehrmacht in World War II when they got, they, got, they could see Moscow as they go over the next ridgeline, but they just ran out of fuel and froze and were eventually decimated by their Russians. So, um, so that can't be done overnight. So it's taking time, but one would expect this massive invasion to take place I don't have a date. I don't know the, the war plan, but you know, within days, but you know, it could be another week or so before they get all the elements in place and then they come in. But then this is going to be brutal for both sides. Um, Israel is going to have high casualties. You're talking about urban warfare going, as I said, door to door, tunnel to tunnel in a situation where Hamas has had 20 years to entrench themselves. It's not like they, they uh, you know, just kind of figured this out last week. So, um, but the Israelis will be very effective in their own way. So we've already had, I think, 3,000 Palestinian casualties in the two weeks since the initial attack. There'll be, the casualties will be in the tens of thousands on the Palestinian side and in, certainly in the thousands, maybe higher on the Israeli side. So this is going to be uh, unlike anything we've seen. So I, I think it's important for Americans to understand, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, you know, you probably heard about the first Antifada, the second Antifada, and, you know, bus bombings in Israel and terror. And that was all true. I mean, when I was in Israel, we had our, our children. Uh, they, you know, we were telling me we on the beach. They just wanted to go to the beach. But, you know, there had been a bombing at a nightclub the, the week before. And I'm like, ah, okay, just get back by dinner time or whatever. So, um, so we lived through that. But that's not what this is. I mean, it's horror. It's war. But this is in a much more horrific uh, uh, initial stage, and it's going to be a much more brutal and drawn out and violent um, uh, result. And so, uh, so the real question. So, so that's how much we know. So, okay, we can start there. What we don't know is, does this thing escalate? And this is where, for investors, I think the impact on oil prices is so important. So, when the war started, when the war broke out after the attack on October seventh. We said, oh, you know, oil's gone to 100 or 150 or whatever. It hasn't, and there was um, no particular reason to think that it would based on 
what I just described. What did happen is oil prices, they went up a little bit. I think like $85, maybe $88 a barrel, but they, they kind of stabilized. But now put this in the global economic context, particularly the United States, gasoline consumption is dropping in the United States. The consumer is sort of tapped out. The, the third quarter numbers might be okay um, based on July and what consumers were doing. They were spending their savings and using up their credit cards. Well, there are limits to that. Your savings get to zero and your credit card is tapped out and you can only make the minimum payment and 20% interest, your principal is going to double in three years. So that's not going anywhere. It kind of looks like the consumer slammed on the brakes maybe around the middle of August, certainly in September. Uh, so we're entering the fourth quarter. I finished the third quarter, entering the fourth quarter with a lot of consumer weakness. Um, you know, gasoline consumption is down. That's usually pretty inelastic demand. You know, you still got to get to work and take the kids to school and all that. But gasoline consumption is down, which is a really negative economic size. So and a lot of other things are deflating. So without this background, one would expect that the wholesale price of oil, you know, WTI and Brent would, would come down, but it hasn't. So I would say, if you say, what's the impact of the war so far? Is that the South of the oil prices have soared, but they haven't come down. They, there's a floor. Now the question is, off of that floor, does it stay there, or does does something else happen that causes it to spike up to that one twenty hundred fifty dollar barrel of oil that some people have been talking about? The answer is it could, depending on Iranian involvement. Iran is the key to the whole thing. So Iran supports Hamas, but they have much larger support uh, for Hezbollah. I mean, I wrote a. Um, a monograph for one of the Washington think tanks uh, two years ago. On it was on Lebanon, but you know you can't write about Lebanon without talking about Hezbollah, uh, how they finance things, and you know, and a lot else. Uh, and um, Hamas is militarily much larger. Sorry, Hezbollah is militarily much larger, much stronger, much better armed than Hamas. Um, as I say, Hamas is coming with bulldozers and paragliders. Uh, Hezbollah has got. Um, you know, drones and precision missiles and, and by the tens of thousands, uh, a much larger force, better trained, better equipped, et cetera. So that's really, Hezbollah is really Iran's proxy army or mercenary army in Lebanon on the northern border of Israel. So two things. Number one, when Israel, when Israel attacks Gaza, which we just talked about, does Hezbollah open a second front? So all of a sudden, the Israeli defense forces have got to be fighting in the north and the south, which obviously weakens them in both places because they can't concentrate more than a certain amount of force. Number one, uh, Israel is preparing for that. They've already, I, I mean, as I say, I've been, uh, I've been in the Golan Heights. I've been in the West Bank. I've been in Palestinian territory. Jordan, I've been all over the place there. Um, and when he gets up on the Golan Heights and realize why Israel is never giving it up because it just looks down on all Sea of Galilee, you know, almost to the, to, to the Mediterranean, uh, but I, and I've been to uh, kibbutz, um, kibbutzes in, um, in that part of Israel. Um, they're evacuating all that because they're worried about what Hezbollah is going to do next. So, so the first level of es ex escalation would be if Hezbollah launches a substantial attack and Israel's in a two-front war. That will send the price of oil up because the next step is Iran. Now, Iran's backing all of this, just to be clear. Iran's financing all of it. Mostly Hezbollah, but also Hamas, um, and Iran sharing intelligence. So Hamas doesn't have spy, you know, doesn't have uh, spy satellites, but Iran does. So they can share intelligence with Hamas and, and Hezbollah. Obviously, 
Uh, Iran has a very advanced missile program. They can share that with Hezbollah. So if Hezbollah opens a front in the north, then that's, that's proxy participation, a very close to direct participation by Iran. Uh, and then the question is, does Israel attack Iran? Or does the United States get involved? Uh, once that shot is fired, then, okay, then forget it. Now you're talking about closing the Persian Gulf. You're talking about um, which Iran can do. We, we can try to, you know, fight the Iranian Navy in the, in the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, that would be um, a touch-and-go battle. But, uh, I mean, we win. But you know, do you really want a full-scale naval engagement between Iran, the United States, and the Straits of Hormuz? You can, I've been there, too. You can... Well, not quite. Uh, I sound like Sarah Palin, but you, you can almost see across it uh, from from the high elevation. Uh, pretty tight quarters, but that's what could result. So at that point, you know, oil's one fifty. Who knows how high? Um, the U.S. economy's sinking, uh, and don't underestimate the extent to which Iran and I'll throw in Russia because let's not forget the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is a financial war. Yeah, of course it's a kinetic war. Of course people are being killed. It's sad. Um, you know, 400,000 Ukrainian casualties. I just talked about possibly tens of thousands of Palestinian casualties. But this is a financial war as much as anything. Um, and the U.S. is losing. Uh, the, you know, the Russian sanctions have failed. I, I, I teach a seminar in financial warfare at the U.S. Army War College, and I told my 2022 class, this is April 2022, not long after the Ukraine war started, I said these sanctions are going to fail, and worse than that, they're going to uh, they're going to uh, there'll be blowback that's going to hurt the United States more than it's hurt Russia. That's all that's happened. So, uh, so we know a lot. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. I think we can correctly anticipate a large scale Israeli uh, land infantry armor drone uh, invasion of Gaza. But what we don't know is, will Hezbollah open a second front? Would escalate to Iran? But those are the things that are, re that are really going to tip the global economy into a global recession, if not a, uh, a financial crisis. Hey there, I just want to quickly interrupt the video and just say thank you. Thank you so much for coming to this channel and choosing to watch this interview. I hope that you are enjoying it and I appreciate you visiting the channel. If you like what you see, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything. It's totally free and it will keep you up to date on all of my interviews. I post two interviews a week with some of the most incredible people in, in finance and investing and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guests. If you already are one of my subscribers, thank you so much. I cannot express to you how much your support means to me. I am incredibly grateful that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about. And you being there week after week, it not only gives me that energy, but it just gives me that faith to keep going. And it means everything to me. And I love seeing you all in the comments section. I love interacting with you. I love interacting with you on email or social media. I just love hearing from you all. And I just appreciate your support so much. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to do something that I just love. So I just want to say thank you and appreciate you subscribing. All right, back to the interview. It is so great to have you on, Jim, just because of the wealth of knowledge that you always bring to these conversations. I have a following. I have a lot of followings, but um, you mentioned uh, 
this being a financial war. And I know you do, you're right. You're right. You, you teach the class at the U.S. Army War College. Um, and I want to ask you about that. If we could flesh out um, more on what you mean by this is a financial war, I think that's important for folks to understand. Well, right. And I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I uh, was a facilitator and a participant in the Pentagon's first ever financial war game in 2009 at the Warfare Analysis Laboratory, part of Johns Hopkins. It's a top secret uh, lab about halfway between Washington and Baltimore. Uh, the Pentagon did not need my help in war games, but they did need outside expertise in financial war. They had never done that before. And I even recruited, and, and they they sort of, you know, they had the FBI and the CIA and the Treasury and uh, think tanks, what I call the usual suspects. I said, look, if you want a really good financial war, it involves you know, lying, cheating, and deception. We got to get some Wall Street people in here because that's what they're good at. So I was able to recruit um, a, a top private equity manager and one of the top analysts for one of the biggest banks in the world. So we got a little, uh, little Wall Street expertise in the room. Uh, went extremely well. Since then, um, uh, by the way, the scenario we did in 2009 was that Russia and China were going to accumulate gold and start a new gold-backed currency and try to run the dollar off the road. So we did that uh, 14 years ago, uh, warned the Pentagon. The whole idea of a war game is not to do today's war. It's to look five, 10 years down the road and help people prepare for what might be coming. We're there now. I mean, we, we, you and I talked about the BRICS and other, uh, you know, other multilateral efforts to, uh, to get out from under the dollar. But I did another uh, war game, what, what we call tabletop. You just get 11... 15 experts around the table and you, you, you talk it through, you know, it wasn't quite as elaborate in that sense as the, um, as the 2009 war game. But I was sitting one seat away from one of the top officials at the United States treasury who was, his, he was, he was like the dollar guy, uh, liaison to Asia, Japan and China and so forth. And, uh, so I, I basically tell that my, like, you're in a, you're in a vault in the Pentagon, you know, but I tell them what I tell your viewers, uh, you know, the, the greatest threat to the dollar doesn't come from overseas, although there is a threat. It comes from the United States itself. We are, we're the ones destroying the dollar by overusing sanctions. And that's what I said at the time. I said sanctions can be effective, but when you overuse them, you create an incentive for your adversaries to get out from under the dollar system to come up with alternatives. Easier said than done. It takes takes a long time, but um, but they begin working on that because they don't want to be the next victim. And the the if you say, what was this, you know, I'd use cliches, but the, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back is when the United States froze about $250 billion of uh, treasury notes and securities owned by the Central Bank of Russia. Those were their reserves. They had them invested, not all of them, but a lot of the reserves in uh, U.S. treasuries. We froze them. Um, that was unprecedented. I mean, we kicked Iran out of SWIFT and we did the same thing with Russia. We did a lot else to Russia, but Freezing central bank reserves of a major global power, largest atomic nuclear arsenal in the world, you know, et cetera, uh, had never been done before. Well, think about that from the perspective of you know Brazil, Saudi Arabia, India, um, Turkey, uh, a lot of other countries. You're sitting there saying, "Well, huh? If they did that to Russia, what if I do something? The United States doesn't like. Are they going to freeze my reserves?" And the answer is maybe yes. So you've now created a very powerful incentive to get out from under dollar hegemony. Um, it didn't come from them, it came from us because we were overusing the reserves. So I pointed this out in this um, this war game I'm describing and this treasury official, he kind of like slammed both hands 
like face down on the table, like boom, like that. He goes, the dollar has been the global reserve currency. It is the global reserve currency today, and it will always be the global reserve currency. And I, I turned and I said, David, I, I feel like uh, I'm in Whitehall in 1913 listening to John Bull say sterling is the global reserve currency, and it always will be. And then, you know, 30 years later, it was it was done. Um, so, uh, but you can't get through. I mean, I always get the meetings. I mean, I've been in the Pentagon, that, uh, Office of that Assessment, which is their futurist think tanks. You know, I've been in the Treasury and the Fed, et cetera. The only people who kind of understand what I'm saying are at the Pentagon because they- I mean the, the the military and the and the office of Secretary of Defense because as I say to them I say when the rest of the government screws up it ends up in your lap like the military and that's going to happen in Israel the military is going to have to come in and pick up the pieces that other people in the State Department the Fed and the Treasury have have you know scrambled um, so uh, so they kind of get it but the Treasury doesn't get it uh, the Feds kind of not involved they they don't really do international stuff it's not part of their mandate so so-called uh the white house jenny allen doesn't understand anything we're talking about right now she's um she's a statistics geek from berkeley uh you know probably a high iq no common sense no real international experience so she doesn't understand this um so what i when i taught my financial warfare seminar at the u.s Army War college in 2022 as I mentioned, I told them it was it was all brand new. The sanctions coming. I understood them. I worked with sanctions for for years, um, decades, and uh, I said they're powerful. They're going to fail. They won't work for a country like Russia. Russia has too many alternatives. And the big factor was that nobody joined it. Um, China has not joined the sanctions. India, Brazil, uh, Turkey. Uh, these are large, powerful countries. None of them have joined the sanctions. Um, so there's no coalition of the willing. It's like a non-coalition of the unwilling. When you have that, when Russia has that many trading partners who won't join the U.S. sanctions, they have a lot of alternatives. They have other places to sell oil, other ways to get currency payments, uh, other ways to keep their economy afloat. Now they're under total. The, the Russian economy is booming. I mean, actually, they have a little bit of an inflation problem because they're they're on a war footing. They put their economy on a war footing to fight the war in Ukraine. Well, guess what? When you do that. Lots of jobs, lots of factories, lots of output, you know, et cetera. So, and that, and that's what's happening in Russia. The U.S. was totally unprepared for that. Um, but it, it was interesting because it was right after the war started, and my class, they're all handpicked. It's about 12, 13 people, uh, uniform military, kind of mid-career. So, they're like late 30s, early 40s, uh, lieutenant colonels, colonels, uh, the Navy commander. I had the top gun once. He, he was in my class. Uh, um uh, you know, and other uh, uh, other officers, uh, say fighter pilots, but some civilians. So it's usually State Department or CIA or um, some other member of the intelligence community in the class. And I got a lot of pushback in 2022, which is fine. I mean, that's what, the seminar format is designed for that. It's, you're supposed to get pushback. That's how people learn. Uh, but I, you know, I kind of took them through it. But when I taught the class in 2023, I did it again. You know, just a few months ago. And I started by telling them about 2022. I said, here's what I told the class last year. I got a lot of pushback and I was right about everything. Everything I said has played out. The Russian economy is probably going to outperform the US economy this year. The ruble, remember Biden, you know, we're going to destroy the ruble, crush the ruble. It went down for about a minute after the war broke out. And then it spent most of the year around 70. Right now it's around 95. It's weakened a little bit. That's partly because 
they have a little bit of inflation, but the ripple's fine. Uh, the reserve position, the U.S. froze at two hundred fifty billion. Well, guess what? They had two hundred billion in gold, physical gold that you can't freeze because it's non-digital, etc. So Russia's fine, and I told the twenty twenty-three class all that. I had one very interesting experience. So I said, you know, basically everything the New York Times says is a lie. Everything the Washington Post says is a lie. NBC News. If you're trying to get um, reliable intelligence, now I'm kind of flipping to the war in Ukraine for for a minute. Um, all those sources just propaganda outlets. The, the, the New York Times works for the State Department. The Washington Post works for the CIA. NBC News, you know, sort of the same thing. I said, you have to find other sources. And it took me a while. It was really hard to find reliable expert sources of what was going on in Ukraine because you certainly were not getting it from the Economist, the Financial Times, New York Times, and all the all the other outlets I mentioned. Uh, and I did develop that network, um, and I listed it for the class. I said, here's where you have to look to get good intelligence on Ukraine. And so one of the breaks, this very nice lady who was a senior official at the State Department, took me aside. She said, um, would you mind sending me that list of sources? And I said, of course, I'd be glad to. And I did. But then I thought about it. I said, wait a second. You've got like a top secret security clearance. Like if you know the whole top secret thing is like there's stuff beyond that I can't even talk about. But I said, you got all the security clearances in the world. You have access to the entire intelligence community output. And you're asking me for sources. Um, but it shows you how much then of a bubble the U.S. intelligence community, the military, and how much propaganda there is and how much the intelligence service are lying to our own people. Um, and she's like, can I get some of this other stuff? I said, yeah, here it is. So that's uh, so we're losing the financial war in Ukraine. We're losing the financial war to the BRICS. Not all at once. These things can take years to play out. But we're doing it to ourselves uh, by abusing sanctions. They're weaponizing the dollar. Well, we weaponize the dollar. You should expect that trading partners are going to weaponize back. And that that's what's happening. So that's yeah. kind of taking the Israeli thing widen the aperture a little bit to include Ukraine, and then look at the international monetary system, the whole thing's in play. Jim, it's so great having you on. Let me see if I can sneak one question before, before sure. you have to run. Okay, I want to get your take on the U.S. and specifically the status of the U.S. And the reason I want to bring this question up is the continuing decaying trust in institutions, whether it's the right. media and college campuses. You've seen protests on these campuses, tearing down of flyers of... Um, these victims of terrorism. Just want to get your take, and and maybe I'm sure you have one on this. Sure. Um, I mean, we talked at the beginning of the interview, uh, Julie, about um, you know the horror of this attack, and it was. I don't need to repeat that. Um, but what was the kind of protest? Now it's interesting that it happened during one of the. Um, most important Jewish religious holidays. It wasn't Yom Kippur, but it was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. But I, I don't know exactly the holiday, but it's an important Jewish holiday. So from sundown Friday to to um, to sundown Saturday, there, you know, a devout Jew will just kind of like not look at the internet or not look at TV or whatever. They just um, kind of cut themselves off. So they they the war happened, and don't think any of this was coincidental. Hamas attacks on a Jewish holiday. American Jews are home you know, with Shabbat and, and celebrating the holiday. So it wasn't until they kind of woke up Sunday morning 
when they can kind of you know get back online and get back. Oh, look what happened! Uh, but by then, the anti-Semites and the pro-Palestinian factions were out on college campuses. You know, in other demonstrations, but definitely on college campuses. And we saw these letters um, signed by thirty student groups uh, from Harvard University. Um, but we saw similar things uh, from. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania, NYU, Columbia, you know, some of the top schools, I should say formerly top schools. By the way, just as an aside, I, by the way, I went to, uh, I have two law degrees, one from Penn and one from NYU. It used to be sort of a bragging point. Now I'm like almost embarrassed that, you know, I got a good education in the 70s and 80s, but that was a long time ago. Uh, it's almost embarrassed to have those affiliations now. But I would say that, um, so yeah, so there was a very strong, pro-Palestinian tint, but being pro-Palestinian is one thing, being anti-Semitic is another that can be closely related, but I would say this was had crossed the line into anti-Semitism because the Israelis were the victims. I mean, in in horrific manner, uh, but to say, well, that's what you deserve for being colonialists, I mean, these are just, um, these are lightweight intellects using recycling things that they've been propagandized about in the classroom by their equally Marxist lightweight professors. Um, but one of the questions, a little bit oblique to, to your question, Julia, but how long can places like Harvard, I'll say Harvard, Columbia, Penn, you know, the uh, schools I in you know, different contexts with, go on with, uh, you know, affirmative action, uh, destroying women's sports. And I got like a, I've got a daughter, two granddaughters, no, three, three granddaughters, uh, a daughter, wife, uh, mother, sister, you know, women are a big part of my life. And looking at Title IX and the way it's being destroyed by letting men compete in women's sports um, and, you know, not coming down hard on these pro-Palestinian, I would say anti-Semitic protests shows um, cowardice on the part of administrators. How long can you do that before the brand is no longer there? It's fun. They say, well, we're Harvard, so we can kind of do whatever we want. We're Harvard. And at some point, it's a tarnished brand. You know, you, you want to start looking at other schools. If uh, if you have college-age children, you, you definitely want to look at other schools. Um, but uh, I was actually shocked by the extent of it. Not the fact that it existed. You expect that, but it was prevalent. It was dominant. It wasn't even 50-50. It was like, we're just all pro-Palestinian with all these, like, you know, cheesy, weak rationales. Uh uh, this is existential from Israel's point of view. Um, you got to understand that. I mean, probably come back to the Bible, but at least you got to understand the history since 1948. Um, how many wars there have been? Israel won all of them except for one, 2006 against Hezbollah. I'd call it a tie, only because Israel didn't want to get further involved in Lebanon. But um, you know, when you win wars, you get stuff, and uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, but they've never given up. It's ideological. It's radical. It's disgraceful. Uh, and I think the losers are not only these organizations, but the schools themselves by tolerating it. They've, you know, at some point you really don't care about the so-called Ivy League. They're just yeah, Marxist incubators. Well, Jim Records, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. It's always great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you just taking the time today. Thanks, Julia.